You're listening to the Rocky Mountain UFO Podcast with Doc Pearson. I'd like to welcome everyone to this edition of the RM UFO Podcast. I've got a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Philip Mantle, coming to us from the UK. Philip has written a new book called UFO Landings UK that I'm very excited about. He's just got a huge breadth of knowledge about all of the UFO landings in the UK. Like a lot of people like to say, across the and I think you guys are going to enjoy our conversation today. So, Philip, just wanted to get into our interview and find out what got you interested in the UFO phenomena. Yeah, well, good evening. Nice to speak to you. Um, I mean, as a young man, I mean, going back to when I was in school, there's a number of things that I was interested in. One was the space race. You know, I was born in 1958, so, you know, almost at the dawn of the space age. And astronomy in general was was a was a topic I was fascinated, and all things paranormal. And I would read whatever I could and consume it. Uh, when I was in high school, I read one book on astronomy. I can't remember the title of it, but it had one chapter on UFOs, uh, basically dismissing them, which I thought was a bit strange because elsewhere in this book. Uh, on astronomy, there were theoretical chapters about things that they expected to find in space, but it was pure theory, you know, this wasn't fact-based. So I, I just found it a bit odd that they would dismiss this subject. So that, that kind of got me intrigued, and I, would, I read a little bit more about it. I left high school in, in 1974 with no idea what I was going to do or what, you know, but I always had this fascination it started to build I mean for example um, I was quite fortunate that my best friend's grandmother literally lived at the opposite side of the street from us and she used to go to the spiritualist church and I went with her a few times and I found it fascinating I didn't necessarily agree with everything they were you know talking about but it, it intrigued me nonetheless and I always had this inquiring mind so we go forward in time, uh, come 1978, over the winter into 1979, I went to work in what was then still West Germany and couldn't speak a word of the language. I mean, not as, so I phoned my mum and I said, mum, can you send me some books to read? I said, yeah. So she sent me a box of books and they're all on UFOs. She, she knew I'd got this interest. So, Rather than sit down and try and figure out what was on the German television on an evening, I, I would read these books. So when I returned home in 1979, I got a bit more of a grasp of the subject. And I used to, I live in the north of England in a county called West Yorkshire, uh, near a city called Leeds. And Leeds, as then did and, and now, used to publish its own uh, daily newspaper on an evening. It's called the Yorkshire Evening Post. Now, my aunt, my aunt Emily, used to live just around the corner from us, and she used to buy this paper every night. She'd come round one day, and she said, have you seen this? And there was a small ad, a small advertisement in it for the formation of the Yorkshire UFO Society coming up that Sunday in Leeds. Now, I don't know about the United States, but in those days here in the UK on a Sunday, everything pretty much used to close, you know? 
and I didn't drive, so I caught I caught the bus into Leeds. I found this location, a place called Centenary House, and um, there's many rooms in it. And I, I found you know this little gathering of people, and it had been set up by two brothers, Graham and Mark Birdsell, uh, and they put on a presentation, and they'd obviously already been involved in the subject for a number of years, and I was amazed that I could buy more books there was a table full of them because they were hard to come by and I, that was it that was me you know up and running i i felt like i'd found my niche in life it's almost like i felt this is where i belonged and uh, i paid my membership fee which was a something around three dollars about two pounds for the whole year you know right and and away we went we used to have monthly meetings there were about 20 or 30 people there, you know, from all walks of life, different parts of the county. And um, so I was up, but I wanted to know more. Rather naively, I thought, I'll join this, I'll read some more books, maybe write a few letters and things like this, and I'll have all the answers I want in no time. I mean, how stupid was I? How naive was I? You know, right. but but I was only a young man. I was, I was, you know, I was 21, didn't know a great deal about the subject. And of course, I wrote those letters and I, I read those books. And all that did was leave me with more questions that I wanted answering. And away we went. Uh, and, and that's how I got involved. So you talk about it a little bit in your book, but what was the, the first kind of UFO report that you were a part of with that UFO group in Leeds? And what was the first one that you thought, yeah, this might be a legitimate sighting? They always talk about some people that, like you said, the media a lot of times didn't hasn't given the UFO uh, community a lot of credit for being, you know, like legitimate science. So when you joined the club and got around like-minded people, what was the first first sighting or first one that you guys documented that you thought, yeah, this one's definitely pretty unusual and it's kind of making the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the area that I lived in, just outside of Leeds, was nearer to a city called Wakefield. And I still live, you know, less than 10 miles from where I was born. And this was an industrial area all around here. It was mainly coal mines. My father worked down the coal mine all, all his working life, for example. And um, I, I, we have our own weekly newspaper separate from Leeds. It was called the Wakefield Express. Still going today. And I got a little piece in it, you know, about me starting, you know, becoming a UFO investigator and you had me pose with a camera and a pair of binoculars or something like that. Got a phone call from a lady and her first words were, you won't believe me, you won't believe me, you won't believe me, you know, before she said anything else. So I said, well, give us a chance, you know. Now she lived in a small town just a few miles up the road called Normanton. And again, it was a coal mining district. Um, so myself and Mark Birdsell, um, we arranged to interview this lady uh, and her children. Her children had seen something as well. Now this lady was called Mrs. Westerman and she lived in a terraced house uh, with no houses opposite and it was a cul-de-sac. So at the bottom of the cul-de-sac were some trees, a little stream and a hill with some electricity pylons on it. And it was an elevated house, so you had to go up five or six steps to get in the front door. It's a lovely summer's day. Um, her children, which was a five of them, 
were playing a ball game out in the street and she was literally washing the dishes just, just after lunch. When one of the children rushed in and said, mom, mom, there's an airplane crashed in the field. So she, naturally she came out of the, the front door and because it was an elevated house, she could see across this field at the bottom of the cul-de-sac. And she says, Philip, it, it wasn't an airplane. It was something shaped like a Mexican hat, like a sombrero. Um, but it was like a silver grain color. So she got the children, they walked down the road, through the cul-de-sac at the bottom, through the trees, and you go down a little dip where the stream is, and then you come up the other side. And the field was bordered by a fence. So they stop at the fence, and this thing is still there on the ground. But now there are three tall men, all dressed in white, what you probably call coveralls, we call them overalls. They were so close that they could see that they weren't wearing gloves, they had mittens. They had something covering their face like a visor and they were waving something over the ground. One of the children started to climb the fence but Mrs. Westerman held him back. And at this point, these, these men went to the rear of this thing. It rose into the sky stopped and shot off into a into a you know and was gone a beautiful sunny day so mrs westerman obviously stunned by this she thought this will be on the tv news tonight we have a local you know we still have a local tv here um and she sat down to watch it nothing not on mention uh so she bought that she bought the local newspaper that week it's got to be in here sure no nothing she even asked some of her neighbors and, and not a thing. Uh, Mark and I interviewed her, the children. She didn't call it a spaceship or a flying saucer, just this thing, you know. Uh, we even interviewed one of the children's friends. He, he hadn't seen anything because he'd gone home for his lunch. And when, by the time he'd come back, it was all over with. Uh, and he was a bit, a, bit, a bit upset that he'd missed all the excitement, you know. Right. Um, so we did the usual checks. We don't have one now, but we used to have a, a helicopter port just about 10 miles away. Um, you know, it wasn't a helicopter. It didn't make a sound. There was no reason why a helicopter would want. There's a, there's, there's a major motorway goes past Normanton. You, again, you probably call it a highway. It's called the M62. It runs from Hull on the, on the East Coast right the way across the, the country to Liverpool on the West Coast. And there are thousands of vehicles go past every hour i mean nothing nobody so it came down to you know you've got one or two choices here these people are either lying or they're telling the truth now mrs westerman wouldn't allow us to take a photograph weren't allowed to use her name and um, her husband was a, a miner worked down the local coal mine so it was a community just like the same as I'd been brought. The children were even playing an invented ball game. You know, it's one that's made up in this neck. I used to play the exact same thing when I was their age, you know? Right. Uh -huh. So you're left, with, you're left with two choices that are either telling the truth or the lying. They could find no reason why they would want to lie. So we're left with the fact that they're telling the truth. And Mrs. Westerman was as puzzled about no one else seeing it as she was by seeing the thing herself, you know? And, you know, I hadn't been involved that long when this, this, this case came along. 
Uh, and it convinced me that whatever the UFO phenomenon was, it was worth me investing my time in it. It wasn't just nonsense. It wasn't, you know, explainable as I'd read previously in this book on astronomy. There was something there. And, it, it, and not only that, it didn't just happen in the desert of New Mexico or the swamps of Mississippi. This was in my back garden. This was a few miles from where I lived in a, in a town pretty much like I lived in. Right, exactly. So, yeah, that's pretty unusual for sure. I know you probably um, have relatives or family that remember World War II pretty well from the area that you grew up. Did you ever hear any stories about Foo Fighters and not the Foo Fighter band, but the actual Foo Fighters that a lot of people claimed that bombers and some of the other um, people in the Air Force, the Royal Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, had seen during World War II. Did you ever hear stories about that? Not, not so much Foo Fighters. I mean, my father was in the Army during the war and, 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 and was wounded. My mother actually made uh, ammunition. Um, so they were both in the war on the... Uh, but in, in my book, UFO Landings UK, we, we, I interviewed a gentleman called John Warren. Um, I, I, I did, again, I did some local press and Mr. Warren contacted me. And it goes back to 1943, it was May 1943. So the middle of the Second World War. And he was stationed at a place called RAF Ludham, which is in Norwich, which is in the county of Norfolk. And he was in the Royal Air Force. And he was what he called an armorer. So the various aircraft that went on a bombing mission or the fighters, he would arm them with whatever projectiles they were going to use that day. And Mr. Wallen said, I got a, I got a pass to, to go to a local dance. I got the night off, you know. And he went to this local dance and he said, stupidly, I missed the last train back to base because this dance was in the next town. It was 12 miles away. So he was a bit worried, not about the 12 miles that he had to walk back, but you could get into trouble if you were late back to, to, to base. So right. he set off walking. As he's coming up to the base, I mean, it's pitch black. He says, up ahead, there was a, a, by the side of the road, there was this green glow. And as he got nearer, he said, there was a, a humanoid standing at the side of the road. It had some kind of box on its chest and there was a green light emanating from the top of this box that shone up into its face. And he said it made it look like it's got a big smirk on its face. And I don't know if you did it as a, a youngster, you put a flashlight on your face and it kind of distorts your features. Right. And he said behind it on a grass verge was an object on the ground it was shaped like a tent, a bell tent, he described it. That was illuminated. And to the left and behind were two more of these beings. And he said it frightened the living daylights out of me. Excuse me. He ran back to the base. Fortunately for him, one of his friends had been waiting up for him and let him in through a window so he didn't get into any trouble. And he told his friend what, what he'd seen. And um, he reported this incident back in the 60s to a UFO group. Uh, and in the book, we have his, the, the reply they gave uh, and a, a, a drawing that was done by Mr. Warren. And he said, Philip, you know, it says we were on high alert. This was a, you know, an RAF base that had fighters and bombers there. 
And he said, had I been armed that night, I would have shot this thing. You know, right. because it wasn't one of us. So if it wasn't one of us, it, it must have been one of them. Although, I, you know, the Germans, he said, but you don't you don't go with your firearm to a dance, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and he had this look on his face, you know, and there's a picture of Mr. Warren in, in the book, and you can see sort of that far away look. You know, he, he's, he's mentally visualizing those events. And he said, I've no idea to this very day what on earth it was that I encountered that night. And, we, and I put that in the book because, the, you know, we're coming up to the 75th anniversary of Kenneth Arnold in June, June the 24th. So we, you know, 1947. So we kind of use that as a start date for the era of modern ufology. But of course, we know that things were witnessed and encountered before that. So the first chapter is about things before 1947. And there is, you know, Mr. Warren is one example of that. In 1943, on mainland UK, right in the middle of the Second World War, you know, and he was a serving RAF um, person. So, uh, you know, uh, but I, you know, I took great, I, I felt really honoured to, to be in person speaking to these people, you know, because I was learning from them. These were the people who would, surely if you can't witness the phenomenon yourself, then the next best thing is to speak to those that have, you know? It's like my father, God rest his soul, he's no longer with us, but I, I talked to him about some of the active service he saw during the Second World War. And, you know, God forbid any of us would have to face it, but the next best thing is to speak to the people that have. You can get a better idea. And Mr. Warren was a prime example of that. And uh, he just, you know, he'd not long retired when I spoke to him in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, he had all his marbles there. He wasn't making this up. And he said, Philip, I'm like, you know, you tell me what it was. I said, I can't tell you. I don't know. You know, so not a full fighter, but, you know, that's about as close as I can come to anything um, um, during the war period anyway, during the wartime. Yeah, and people like that don't have any reason to make up a story like that because, like you said, you know, there's a stigma to it. Um, people that, a lot of people that made it through the war don't like talking about the war. And, that you know, having uh, somebody like that with a story like that, I would say it would be very credible. So the one thing I noticed, too, when you read a lot of the accounts in your book, it seems like over time some of the, the types of UFO sightings change, right? They seemed like in the 50s, you know, the 60s and 70s were a big time, but it seems like the type of aliens or people that people were encountering were humanoid. There are all kinds of shapes and sizes. And then it seems like over the last few years, you owe it. In your background there, if people can see the video, you've got the hear no evil, see no evil <laughs> um, <laughs> with the aliens in the background, with your classic grays that yes. you hear a lot of. Why do you think that over time we've gone from almost like these aliens that you'd see on Star Trek or Doctor Who or something like that to aliens that seems like more often than not these days it's always like these classic grays do you have any you know like your yeah, own well, opinion yeah. why it's that way yeah i mean the u.s as you, as you can see as you 
you've illustrated there perfectly, the UFO phenomenon, whatever it is, has evolved over the decades, or the way we research and investigate has evolved. It, it could be a combination of the two. I'll give you an example. In, in, in 1975, July the 22nd it was, in Wales, you know, Britain is made up of four countries, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Wales is the bit that sticks out on the left. And um, they have their own language. So I apologize, I, you know, I can't, but there's a, there was a, a small place called Macalens. And a young, a young chap and his father, they went to the beach. And this young man, we, we call him Trevor. And his father sat on the beach with him and behind the, the beach is some rocks. So Trevor says, you know, dad, can I, can I climb the rocks? Yeah, son, off he goes. When he gets to the top of these rocks, there is an object there on the ground. It's circular, it's got lights flashing around it. It's dome, it's got a dome on it. And Trevor hides behind a rock and he keeps popping his head up and down, you know, looking at this thing. And there are two, I don't know whether to call them figures or shapes inside it. And this dome starts to open. So Trevor runs down to the rocks, says to his father, dad, dad, you know, the flying saucer thing up here, you know, and off he goes and his father just shakes his head and leaves him to it. The shape of these figures, they, it was almost like your head and shoulders kind of shape. But internally, they were like jelly, molten or molten lava, all squirming and wriggling. I mean, literally. Mm -hmm. And this thing was gone, you know. And I've, I've searched the UFO literature for anything similar to that. And I can't find it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. All I'm saying is I've, I've not been able to find it. That features in, in, in the book as well. And there's a drawing, an artist's impression of this thing. Totally bizarre. And for whatever reason, the 1970s here in the UK were really the sort of epicenter for these high strangeness cases, the weird and wonderful. They, they're really, really bizarre. And that, and that is one of them. Uh, and I used... Dr. Hynek's classifications and, and his, his, his talk about high strangeness. In other words, the closer you get to these things, the more witnesses there are, et cetera, et cetera. The less likely it is you're going to misidentify it as the 945 to Spain, you know, an aircraft or a balloon or whatever. And um, so the, that case is, is full of high strangeness, as, as, you know, the other ones were as well. And it is bizarre, and I'd be the first to admit that. But I think we'll be foolish, be foolish to ignore this type of thing. Now, why things have changed, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a whole different question. If you look at sightings or encounters, I should say, around the world, it is clear that there is a cultural influence on them. For example, I remember in the late 1980s, um, a landing report in Voronezh, in what was the USSR, and it left marks on the ground and people saw it, but the, the, the beings were, you know, great big seven foot tall, strong things. And I'll just remind you of the Russian bear, you know, how, the, how Russia likes to present itself, you know, in, right. in other parts of the world, like the United States, probably the most high tech country at the time, you then start to get the little gray creatures. 
Uh, but if you look at the things around the world, there is a mixture. And of course, here in the UK, we are literally, you know, a, a mixture of races. You know, the first people that ever lived on these shores long before there was countries were of Germanic origin. And then, you know, centuries later, you know, the Romans came. <laughs> and then we had the Vikings. Uh, and then we had the Normans. And then we had, you know, people from the empire. So Britain is truly multi multicultural, whether we like to admit it or not. So it doesn't surprise me that when we report these things, that there's a whole, whole, whole range of different things, weird and wonderful. Uh, and it's, I don't know the answer to the question. All I can say is that we do. Um, because what I don't do with the book is trying to indoctrinate anyone. I'm not saying you must believe what I found. These are my conclusions because I don't have any conclusions. I'll leave the reader to draw their own. All I'm saying is this is the information we've gathered. These are the case histories. Make of them what you will, you know? And that's just one example of it. And again, I apologize for my mispronunciation of the Welsh language, but that's just the way it goes, I'm afraid. Right. Yeah, I've gone back to um, read a lot of the old newspaper clippings and reports, you know, from the 1940s or 50s and beyond. And it is kind of interesting how it's changed over the years. You know, it's it's worldwide too. It's not just your region where you live. It's in the United States and Canada, everywhere. Wherever you get sightings, it seems like there has been kind of a pattern that's been followed over the years. And now we're kind of stuck on this big gray alien with the big eyes, you know, kind of the Whitley Strieber communion alien that you've seen you know he had that book in the 80s but it seems like we've kind of been with that that's by far been the most popular plus it's the one that you see in movies and everything too probably so it's part of the culture now too yeah i think i think popular culture does have an influence on, on the subject um it's a question of which comes first the chicken or the egg you know right. uh, you know the skeptics would argue that popular culture is responsible for the this change ufologists will say well we have incidents that you know were here before we had the communion alien or the betty and barney hill creature or etc etc I, I just want to read one little thing out um because we talk about differences this is from uh, a magazine called the british magazine and the date is 1767 so it's the middle of the the 18th century and it's, it's an extract from a letter from Edinburgh, and it was dated September the 8th. And it says, we hear from Perthshire that an uncommon phenomenon was, was observed on the water of Isla near Cooper Angris, preceded by a thick dark smoke, which soon dispelled and discovered a large luminous body like a house on fire but presently after took a form of something pyramidal. So here we have an object in the, being reported in Edinburgh in the middle of the 18th century that looked pyramidal in shape. Oh, yeah. Triangular. Now, what's happened over these last 20 or 30 years or so is what's become very popular is the flying triangles. Right. Even, if, even if you believe some... Uh, recent revelations of the, the green triangles filmed by the Navy over one of their, their aircraft. Um, so, yes, there are differences, 
but when we go back into parts of history, there's also similarities as well. And I think that's that's just one example of them. Um, right, you have your classic Delta aircraft shape, right? And yep. the Phoenix Lights is a famous one out here in the United States where they talk about the triangle-shaped craft. And a lot of people think that's what a TRB-3, they even have it classified as some kind of advanced military spacecraft. Or, or not spacecraft, but, you know, an advanced type of craft like a stealth bomber. But like you said, that those triangle-type crafts have been a long, around for a long time. And you hear them, you, you read about them in reports from a long time ago, long before the military was working on any of this stuff. And a lot of times they copy things. You still have your classic circular UFO disc craft, right? And it's been that way for a long time. Have you noticed when you've investigated reports, has it been more triangle shaped or has it been more circular? And has that changed over time too? I think I think we got our own share of them. Um, if you if you sort of spread your, your wings a little bit rather than concentrate on your own backyard, in sort of early to mid 1980s in Westchester County in upstate New York, there was a, a whole series of sightings of um, boomerang stroke triangular shaped objects. I think, I believe it was the late Dr. Alan Hynek's, one of his last investigations was into these things up Westchester County. As they dissipated, areas in, in the north of England here then started with these flying triangles. And they lasted for a year or two here. As they dissipated here, we then had them in Belgium in 1989 and 90. So that, you know, the triangular phenomenon in reality probably lasted from the United States through to England and into mainland Europe for about a seven year stint. So, it, you know, it's easy to concentrate on just what happened in, in one place or another, but I was just fortunate that I knew people in these areas and I read a lot. Now, is there a connection? Probably not, but then at the end of all this, what was rolled out on the tarmac was the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber, of course. Again, I'm not saying there's a connection. It, it could well be. But um, so there was a time here in the UK that um, we had a spate of triangle sightings. Uh, they were in vogue, if you like, at the time. Back in back in the, the old days in, in the Royal Air Force, we used to have a, a bomber aircraft and it was called the Vulcan Bomber simply because it was a big, you know, triangular-shaped vehicle. It wasn't stealthy or anything like that. It was a bomber. So going back further in time, with some of the triangle sightings that we had, uh, we got the nickname of the Silent Vulcan. So they were triangular in shape, so they got the nickname of the Vulcan bomber, but silent because they didn't make any noise. And I, I have two, one, one of... One of one colleague I spoke to who's concentrated on these triangle sightings says, but I haven't, I haven't got any cases where these triangles have been seen on the ground. And I said, well, you should read my book then, because there's two in there, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, and one, of, one just happens to be at the end of the 1970s. Uh, we we're talking about weird and wonderful things. Um, not far from the city of York, on which the, uh, the county that, that I live in is, is, is named after, a gentleman had bought a new motor scooter, a little scooter, and he was taking it, taking it out for a ride in, into the semi-rural area when he came 
on this triangular, black triangle-shaped thing. This is daylight on the ground in a field. They had a little, we'll call it a cockpit for want of a better thing at the back, and there were two humanoid beings all dressed in black there, and off it went. And he's a gentleman called Philip Shepherdson. I've, I've met Philip uh, and spoken with him and, in, and, and interviewed him and then corresponded with him thereafter. Uh, and he was astonished by what he saw. He was just out on his, he thought, this is great. It's a nice day. I've got my new motor scooter and I'm, I'm off. Uh, and that was the last thing he expected to see that day. So, you know, I think the triangular sightings went, you know, became fashionable, if you like, or in, in vogue for a, for a while. But we certainly had our share of them. And then it was back to normal after that, a bit of everything. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Of all the people that you interviewed in the cases that you were on, Philip, what was one that maybe frightened you the most or kind of scared you that you're like, this is pretty weird and it kind of gave you an uneasy feeling? Like, I know most of the sightings seem to be pretty benevolent. They interview people afterwards. They say, you know, it wasn't a, a bad experience. It, you know, it wasn't the fire in the sky guy, you know, where you're getting taken up into it. Well, I've, I've, I've had that, not in this book. My, my, the first book I ever wrote was called Without Consent. And it was published in 1994. I did an updated version of it a couple of years back. It was written by a, a co-author with a colleague of mine called Carl, Carl Nogatis. Carl was a, a, um, a Fleet Street journalist by profession and run his own PR company. And I went to interview a young man uh, we call David. Uh, he lived at a place called Pafeli, again in Wales, right on the northwest coast of Wales. And he was only a young man. And uh, at the time, there was a lot of unemployment. And he, he was out of work. And he'd been to a friend's one night. And he said, I'm, I'm walking home. He was 18 years of age. He says, on the main road back to where I lived. Now, you and I would never call it a main road. It's a little country road with, with no lights, you know. And he said, up ahead, the, the, the field had a, was, had a hedge around it. And he said, I could see this, this, this glowing light in this field. And he says, part of me felt drawn to go and have a look at it. Another part of me felt like, no, don't go anywhere near it. But he said, I did. He said, I walked up the side of this field and in it, he said, there's something that looked like the space shuttle. That's the best way I can describe it, on the ground. And he said, I'm stood there looking through this hedge at this thing. When I'm grabbed from behind, these humanoid beings had a sort of a helmet on that was like octagonal. And he says, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm on something, I'm lying on a bed or a bench or whatever you want to call it. And I can, there's a big screen and he said, I can see the planets going past on this big screen. And these creatures are there. And he had, this is how long it go, back it goes, he had a Sony Walkman. You know, with a little cassette tape in it. Oh yeah, from the 80s, and it, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and David liked rock music. He was a bit like me, he had long hair, a denim jacket. And they took this cassette out and put it in this console and said, it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. He said, you're in this otherworldly environment and there is this rock music blaring out. And um, they did something to his wrist and it, it 
it hurt. And he kind of let them know it hurt. And then the next thing he he's, he's wandering back down the road. He went home. Um, he lived with his mum. He told his mum. He could remember every single second of it. He told his mum. The next day, his mum went to the local library and found one UFO book. And there was uh, a UFO group mentioned it in Oxford, which is nowhere near Northwest Wales. It's a long way away. So she managed to find a, a phone number for them and she rang them and they said, we'll come, we'll come and meet you. So David goes to bed that night and he is, and I mean, terrified. So what his mom did, she put him in the back of the car and she drove to Oxford. It started to snow unannounced and turned up on this, uh, this UFO group's doorstep, which was just a house where they lived, you know, right. and he was petrified. Now, I interviewed David a couple of times and um, I went back to the, the scene with him and I said, will you show me where it happened? It's just a field. You know, it, it could have been anywhere. And I, I took a photograph of him and I didn't realize until I had the photograph developed how uncomfortable he was. He's kind of stood there like a like a plank of wood. And I, I apologized to him. So Carl and I wrote the book. It came out in 1994. And I sent David a copy as well as some of the others in it. And he, he acknowledged, he, he wrote back, thank you. He'd now started, he'd grown up and started his own family. Um, and it was three years later before I heard from him again. And he says, it's taken me three years to pick up, pluck up enough courage to read the book. He says, because what, what you don't know, Philip, is I had to go and have hypnotherapy, not regressive hypnosis, hypnotherapy to relieve the nightmares I had about that evening. And wow. it scared the bejesus out of him. So it, I kind of felt sorry for him. I felt that, you know, have I done the right thing? Um, so it didn't scare me in that respect, but again, it scared the living daylights out of David. And he was a, you know, he was a nice young guy, you know, he liked simple things like his girlfriend, rock music, his job, you know, he'd started a family by this time. You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd, but it's, so I said to him, okay, David, um, what was this? You know, this, this incident, it, you can remember every second of it. Well, what, you know, what happened that night? He says it must have been the Russians. <laughs> you know, he didn't honestly believe it was the Russians, but in those days, the Russians were the bad guys, so I'm going to blame it on them. You know, that was his way of rationalising it. Um, but in other words, I have no idea, you know. And I really felt, you know, I could, I could feel the, 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 I could feel him being scared because I've still got the photographs of him. And, and he stood there like a plank. I didn't realise it at the time, but, you know, we, we live and learn. So that's not in the UFO landings book. That, that's, but again, I felt such a privilege to be able to sit with David and talk to him about this encounter. And he trusted me. I, I know his real name, although we've not used it in, in the book. Uh, where he is now, I, 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 I wouldn't like to say. I, I don't know. I didn't keep in touch down the years. But that was a an episode that's always stuck in my mind. It really has. In your current book, UFO Landings UK, you probably, whenever somebody writes a book, you probably have a couple of favorite stories. 
what are a couple of your favorites that really stand out that you you enjoy? I think one of the, one of the and it, there's a reason for this in in 1979 November 1979 in Scotland at a place called Livingston. And for those who want to know where it is, it's sort of halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. They're on opposite sides, and it's, it's kind of in the middle. Small town, uh, and it involved a gentleman by the name of Mr. Robert Taylor. Robert was a forestry worker, and just on the edge of town was Decamont Woods. On that November day, Robert jumped in his truck, going to work, said goodbye to the wife, him and his dog, you know, off they went, he parked the truck up, he's walking down um, a path into Decamont Woods. He comes across a small clearing, and sat in this clearing is this dome-shaped object. Got a dome on it. Mr. Taylor described it as having a border around it. He called it a flange. It was like a border around the bottom. These little things sticking up from it, they look like uh, the old-fashioned propellers. Although they weren't spinning, and he said uh, he stood there looking at this thing dumbfounded when either from behind it or from underneath it, these balls appeared with spikes on them. And it could it could hear them plopping across the ground as they rolled towards him. He described them as looking like the the, the sea mines they used during the Second World War, but not as big, you know, and these were black. And it, they rolled across the ground towards him to the side of him and he felt them pull his trousers. He felt them grasp the hold of his trousers and he passed out. He was unconscious. When he came, when he came to, he heard this whistling noise. There was a strong smell of sulfur and his dog was doing somersaults almost. So he, he staggered to his feet, got in the truck, but drove it into a ditch. So he literally staggered down home. It wasn't that far to walk into the house and there's his wife. And she says, what's happened? And he says, I've been attacked. Because he, you know, he, he got a scrape on his chin, he's dirty uh, and his trousers were torn. So she phones the police and the police come. Uh, Mr. Taylor is taken to the local hospital for a checkup. After waiting for so long, he feels fine and he, he goes home. Police went to the location where this incident happened in Deckmont Woods, and there are marks in the ground. Only at this location, not approaching it, not not going away. Only in this little clearing, and there are two like caterpillar tracks, and then there are like these uh, capital U-shaped indentations in the grass. So they sealed the area off that night, November. It froze. So the ground froze and protected these, these marks in the ground. And the police, because Mr. Taylor was a, an upstanding member of the local community, they launched a full forensic investigation. So they did a diagram of this area. They took photographs of these marks. They took away Mr. Taylor's trousers and had them examined at a forensic laboratory. And these tears that are now were on either side of his trousers where these things are grabbed him went right through. And these were heavy woolen, you know, workday trousers. This is November in Scotland. It's not a time to be walking around in your shorts and t-shirts, you know? Right. And um, 
the the forensic report said that these tears were consistent with being you know gripped and pulled upwards and 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 they couldn't figure out what happened to him and um i interviewed uh, mr taylor some years later my, my colleague malcolm robinson who was in scotland comes from scotland uh, was there within, I think, either the next day or the day after, literally, on site. Malcolm took me back many years later. I interviewed Mr. Taylor, and he appeared in our our book without consent because there was a period of missing time uh, when he was unconscious. And um, he was a very down-to-earth gentleman, you know, still he now retired, he was well-respected, and the police have gone on the record, you know, they've done interviews and things like that, and, and they, they couldn't figure it out. It is the only UFO case in Britain that has had a full police forensic investigation carried out on it. And that's why it stands out, you know, and that's off, you know, there's drawings in there, there's copies of some of the photographs of the landing marks uh, in the book. Um, it's in UFO landings as well. And there's the first one of the pages from the police report, and it tells you there, you know, consistent with being pulled upwards, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Malcolm and I, you know, we went back to the lo this location many years after the event. And in this little clearing, the local council had now put a picnic bench. So you had a picnic bench cemented into the ground. And I just commented to Malcolm, why don't you get a little brass plaque made and just screw it on the side of the picnic bench? Nobody's going to object. Right. Malcolm, Malcolm, to his credit, took that idea and went to the local council. And they ran with the idea and they didn't put a little brass plaque. They put a used great stone cairn with a plaque right in the middle of it to commemorate the site. And just, you know, just before the pandemic, they even now put signage up as well telling you about the event so from that little off-the-cuff remark Michael, Malcolm did a great job and it's now officially recognized if you like by the local council because it's just just a forest it's just a wood you know you wouldn't know where anything was if you, if you didn't know where you were going there's nothing to see it's just just a nice place to go for a walk but it is commemorated and it's it's one of the few places in the UK that is but it's the only case that has had a full police forensic investigation carried out on it and it, it you know it's fascinating that's amazing i've never heard that story that is amazing it's really good that that they did commemorate the spot too so people could go and see where that happened which is great because it helps i think you've probably found out in your investigations when you see these actual places where a lot of these events take place it helps you kind of build a picture in your mind of how it was or what, how it exactly happened. There's a lot of talk and then it seems to be lately we're in a time where there's a lot of more talk about UFOs where the government are trying seem like they're taking it more seriously. You've been knee deep in this phenomenon, Philip, for the last 50 years, probably. Right. So what's your own opinion of what's going on? I know I've, you know, people hear theories, people from, you know, other planets, people from other dimensions, could be time travelers. You, you hear all kinds of different things that people speculate. From 50 years of researching the phenomena, what do you think it is? Or do you think it's a combination of things? 
Yeah, I'm not not quite 50 years, but I'm getting there. <laughs> you know, right. uh, I, I know I look that old, but I'm not honest. But uh, I think the the UFO phenomenon should be plural phenomena. But it seems to me we're dealing with a number of things. Um, once we've once we've got rid of all the misidentifications and hoaxes and so on, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I don't know to what percentage. I would say some UFO sightings will probably be military hardware of some description. Probably some that never made it beyond the prototype, you know? Um, some poor devil just inadvertently stumbled across it, saw it where he shouldn't be, or, you know, or it went off, off course. I think that is a small percentage because you, you know as well as I do, you don't go from the U-2 to the stealth bomber. There is bits in between that, you know. Uh, where, you know, and where do they test the bits in between? They have to test these things. So maybe, you know, maybe a small percentage of that is some. Maybe some of it is some that, you know, like we said, in the 1980s, from the sort of mid mid to early 1980s, from the United States through the UK into Belgium, there are all these triangle sightings. You could actually buy an Airfix model of the stealth aircraft before it was unveiled on the tarmac. And right. it wasn't bad, it was pretty accurate, you know? So they had to test that damn thing somewhere. So surely somebody will have, have come across it. And of course, there will be the next generation, whatever that may be. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think some of the um, strange lights that are seen like maybe in Marfa, we have them here in, in parts of the Yorkshire Dales National Park, uh, Peak District National Park. Uh, they have them in Hestalen in, in central Norway. It's the it's strange lights. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a natural phenomenon that, that we, we haven't yet identified. It's still on the fringes of accepted science. But it could be fascinating. You know, there could be a new energy source there, or it may tell us how you know, the Earth's crust is made and how it reacts or whatever. There could be a whole scientific discipline there if we could harness this, this thing. So we'll put that to one side as well. But then I think there's a much smaller percentage that is really baffling and don't seem to fit into any of these categories. No matter, I can be as sceptical as the next person and there's nothing wrong with that because as a UFO researcher, you know that most sightings you get are going to have an explanation. That's just the way it is. So, you, you, you know, you, you should be naturally sceptical. Um, and But some of these specific encounters that are up close and personal, high strangeness, they are very difficult to explain in conventional means. And I don't have an answer. Uh, you know, I'm still the chap in, in many respects who began at the Yorkshire UFO Society, you know, in, in, in 1980, writing those letters and asking those questions because I haven't found the answers. If I'd found the answers, then you and I wouldn't be having this conversation tonight. I'd probably be, you know, working in the garden or, or some other such hobby, you know, right. or pastime, you know. And, and I think every time I've gone down a, an avenue where I thought, I think I wanted something here. There always something seems to crop up that just says, no, you know, Sorry, but this is, 
a, a, a case has just thrown a spanner in the works of that. That's, so I try not to operate with any theory or, or, or any hypotheses in mind. I just I think, I think the best we can do is to document these cases in the best way we can and present them to whoever wants to, to listen to them or to take notice of them. And that's what Dr. Jacques Vallée has said, you know, for, for decades. You know, just present the evidence we have in the best way we can. Uh, and, and that's what I try and do, you know, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's definitely enigma. It's a riddle within a riddle. It seems like when you when you go down a path with a lot of these cases, it doesn't seem like there's, you know, an answer. And that's probably why the government hasn't come out with any kind of official word on a lot of this stuff, because they probably don't know on a lot of these, too. And when people talk, do you think there is going to be some kind of disclosure with these governments? No, or do you think a, there is going to be like it is? No, I think disclosure is a fantasy. I mean, when I first started, I won't mention any names, but there's a well-known British author. He said, they are going to tell us, the government, it's, it's coming now. And I said, who the hell is they? And who's the government? Then you had um, Operation Right to Know, all marching with their placards outside the wall. Oh, they're going to tell us. Who, who, who's going to tell us? Now they just call it disclosure. It's the same thing, different name. Uh, and it's not going to happen. You'd have because you are assuming in the first place that they have something to tell us. Basically, what the disclosure movement is saying is we believe that we're being visited by aliens, that our government knows that, and we want them to confirm it for us. That that's their definition basically of disclosure. And um, you're going to be around, you know, you're going to have to wait for an awful long time. If you think about, it, let's say. We had made contact with this beings from another world. How, however, whenever, who would make that announcement? Right. Would it be Joe Biden? Yeah, right. Well, he doesn't, you know, there's people who don't don't agree with Mr. Biden. You know, he's your president. You know, they accuse him of being some old duffer who can't remember his name. You know, had it been not that long ago, it would have been President Trump, who also had his detractors. Would it be the United Nations? Well, not every country is linked to the United Nations. And a lot of people just accuse them of being a talking shop and they don't really get anything done. Would it be a religious leader? Would it be, you know, his holiness, the Pope? Well, not everybody's a Catholic. And then, well, let's assume, you know, it's, it's a conglomeration of, but there are populations in this world that are not linked to Western culture have no idea what, what goes on in the West on a day-to-day -day basis, and that even in our indigenous peoples in various countries don't, still don't even have electricity and, and mobile phones. So they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't bat an eyelid no matter who said what to whom, you know. So I think if you're waiting for disclosure, you're going to, you, you, you know, you better take a deep breath because you're in for a long wait. But um, yeah. it, it was interesting that NASA... I said, we're going to look into the UFO phenomenon. They call it UAPs now or whatever. Still a UFO, whatever whatever name you put on it. But I think their budget for this preliminary look is it is $100,000. What are they going to do with it? You know, what's that going to do? What we have to remember, doesn't matter whether it be me, you, or the Department of Defense, we don't investigate UFOs. We investigate reports of UFOs. And 
you know, they will be the same. They don't have, you know, a UFO to put under the microscope because you then assume that UFOs are alien spacecraft and you've got one from somewhere or a piece of one. Um, but, you know, so they're chasing shadows just like you and I are. And if you look at the, the three so-called DOD videos that came out, you know, Flair and Gimbal and, and the Tic Tac, they were photographed, they were filmed by, you know, Top Gun Navy aircraft. Hundred hundred and fifty million dollars each, yeah, right. And what did they film? Fuzzy blob. Yeah, right. Exactly. I no, was wondering why. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, you're right. You go on the internet. You go on YouTube tomorrow, and people will film similar things on their camera phones. But it's a fuzzy blob, you know. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking, well, it, you know, ladies, gentlemen, you're flying these these aircraft. If you went into combat, I hope you can see something clearer than that. Because we know from drone footage that when there's been targets of installations or even personnel, you can see the people in the street, you know, and it's not just a fuzzy... Well, when it comes to UFOs, oh, it happens to be a fuzzy blob. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's been that way forever. Yeah, yeah. They, there's not one real good picture, and I agree with you. You, I'm sure there was a setting on those cameras they could have adjusted to get those a little bit better, and they call them Tic Tacs, and, but you didn't see anything that looked it, it better than a fuzzy blob. And, you know, th that made huge news. It's still big news. And well, it's, 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 it's interesting, but, that, but it is no more than that because you have the supporters of these films saying, ah, but there's a lot more. Wait until you see the really good stuff. Well, we've been waiting, you know, five years, and there's still no more of it. Uh, that is, I mean, you know, I, I've I've dealt with these landing cases. I've interviewed people. I've interviewed people who've been, you know, had abduction accounts, and I believe them, you know. But you show me a, a, a convincing film, a piece of photograph of an alien, or or a, a, a UFO on the ground, you know, close up and personal. And and there isn't one, you know, hand on heart, there isn't one that I could accept as as, as something that's outstanding. Uh, and that's a big, big question. You say, well, why is that? And, and I honestly don't know. These people have a, a genuine experience, the nature and origin of which still escapes us. And I think we should look upon ourselves as like some of the early astronomers. The early astronomers said, Rocks fall from the sky, but you look into the sky, they're talking nonsense. There's no rocks in the sky. There's just clouds and sunshine and moonlight. But there was an incident, again, I think it was in the 18th century, where a number of meteorites landed in France, and the skeptics had to admit, finally, that rocks fall from the sky. They still couldn't explain them at that point and how, where they came from and how they got there, but they had to accept, nonetheless, that meteorites, as they became to be known, were a real phenomena. I think we're at that point now with UFOs, where we, we accept where, that the UFO phenomena is real, you know, that there's something to it, but as yet the nature and origin escapes us. So we do our best, we document it as the best we can, and hopefully somebody somewhere will finally make sense of it all. And that's probably long after I'm gone. I'm, I'm pretty sure it won't be me. I'm, I'm, I'm not clever enough to do anything like that, I can assure you. But that's where I, I, I see where we're at at this moment in time. I may be wrong, 
and I would I would happily be wrong if disclosure, as people describe it, happens tomorrow. But I'll be the first to say, "Well done, guys. Thank you very much." Um, but you know, I don't think I will be. But we'll see. Right. And in this day and age, everybody's got a high definition, you know, camera in their pocket with their phones. So I think I probably agree with you that some of the best um, stuff we'll get is probably citizen journalists, people like yourself investigating on our own. It seems like that's where probably the best information is going to come from these days. Don't you agree? Absolutely. You know, we don't need disclosure. The information is there. You know, uh, you know, I've spoken to military people who have had sightings, just like the de de Department of Defense now want to do. They only want to speak to military personnel. Well, fine, well, I've done that. You know, they're not going to tell them any different than they would tell me. You know, right. some of them may, you know, it's as simple as that. We're all chasing shadows. And it's what, what we make of those shadows at the end of the day. Uh, and, and we'll have to wait and see. Yep. Exactly. So, Philip, I'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime again. Can you tell everybody how to get a hold of your books? Are they available on Amazon? Do you have a website? We're, um, we'll also put links in the show notes, but how do people get a hold of your new book? Yeah, just look, you know, it's on, it's on Amazon. It's in paperback, hardback, Kindle, even an audio book. You, know, you can get a nice glass of wine and download the audio book and sit back you don't even have to bother to read it you can have someone else do it for you you know um so all our books are there i, I run a small publishing house called flying dispress so just flyingdispress.com and you'll find us all the books that i've i've written myself and other authors are all on there uh, i'm on facebook uh, i'm on twitter mainly facebook so you know i'm not i'm not i'm not hard to find that's great and then can you tell our audience about what you're working on in the future? You got another book uh, coming up or anything got, else you're working a, on? We've got, yeah, we've got a number of things. We've got some more books from other authors, but from my own point of view, for the last few years, I've been working with American abductee, Calvin Parker. Calvin was one of the two gentlemen who was involved in what's called the Pascagoula case, Pascagoula, Mississippi, on the 11th of October, 1973. I published two books written by Calvin, well, the first one's called Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. The second one is called Pascagoula, The Story Continues. But I've been working with um, a scientist in the States called Dr. Irina Scott. She's in Ohio. And we have found a lot more information about this particular incident. And we've been compiling that. We've been interviewing other people. We have some, in inverted commas, physical evidence. And we'll be presenting all of that next year because it's the 50th anniversary of the Pascagoula case next year. And it will be controversial, but nonetheless fascinating. Uh, and we are, we are hoping that we'll be able to turn it into a documentary series as well. So discussions are ongoing, but the book is done. And apart from editing and, you know, proofreading and that kind of thing, but that won't come out until next year. So stay tuned. That sounds great. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks, Philip. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain UFO Podcast with Doc Pearson.